Well, last week, um, we took a look at a biblical character um, named Naomi. Um, Justin kind of led us through um, her story. And the theme that emerged was centered around this idea of kind of how do we navigate life when God seems absent or silent, maybe even to the point of, of being negligent. He is always, despite that, God is always working behind the scenes in ways connected to his eternal plans for our life. So that's kind of the theme we looked at. Naomi had been driven out of her homeland uh, because of a famine. She was from the city of Bethlehem. She leaves Bethlehem with her husband and two sons and travels to a land east of Israel called Moab. And there things just kind of continue to, uh, to fall apart and disintegrate pretty tragically. Right? She loses a husband, loses both sons. And uh, in the midst of this, you know, a male-driven society, that's, that's like the worst thing that can happen to, to a woman. Um, she's a widow now and has no uh, male heirs to kind of take care of her and her needs. And the question arises in the midst of that story is just where is God in all of this? Why was he allowing these circumstances to continue to kind of stack up against her in a way that kind of leaves her life in peril? Well, as we learned... Um, Something that Naomi did gain in Moab was two daughters-in-laws from her sons. One of those daughters-in-laws, um, Ruth, decides that she's going to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem and live with her there. And as it would turn out, uh, when she comes back um, to town, Ruth um, gets a job kind of cleaning the fields and harvesting the fields of this landowner named Boaz, who happened to be a relative of Naomi's um, husband. And soon Ruth and Boaz are married, and they gave birth to a son named Obed, um, who was the grandfather of King David, whose family offspring later, generations in the future, would one day include a boy named Jesus. So through these tragic events, God hadn't forsaken Naomi. He was working behind the scenes the whole time, uh, finding the provider, a rescue for, for, for her in the present sense with Boaz but then also a spiritual redeemer in her future generations in Jesus Christ. And so the next two Sundays, we're going to dive, as we continue on this series of God is Stranger, we're going to dive into the story of King David, the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And David could certainly relate to his ancestor Naomi in this sense of um, he knew what it meant to experience loss, to feel like life was dealing him a little bit of a rough hand, and then to kind of question God's intentions in the midst of this, in the midst of it. Now, a lot of us know a lot of, you know, David's stories. There's a lot of Sunday school things about David that you learn. But we're going to take a little bit different angle today. We're going to look at kind of a dark period of his life through the lens of his own writing in the book of Psalms. So I want you guys to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 69. It's page 529 in your pew Bibles. So Psalm 69, starting in verse 1, David writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The, flood, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Well, that's a pretty desperate introduction, isn't it? <laughs> God, where are you? Right? I'm drowning here. 
I am calling out your name and you are nowhere to be found. And while we certainly can <clears throat> relate to David's feelings here maybe, there's this part of me that kind of wonders like how did David get here? How did he get to this place? Hadn't he, of all people, seen God show up in some pretty unbelievable and miraculous ways to show himself to David over the course of his life, right? Just to name one little moment, right? This nobody sheep herder slays a nine-foot-plus giant with a slingshot. Pretty miraculous evidence that God is on your side. He's with you. He's engaged. He's, he's doing some things here. Does he really need more proof of God's care for him? But aren't we the same way? Why do we so quickly forget the amazing ways that God has previously shown up in our life? That's a question I'm asking you. Why do we so quickly forget the amazing ways that God has previously showed up in our lives? Why are we prone to that? What do you guys think? Yeah, Chris. Okay. Yeah, he might show up in more subtle ways than some of the ways that you read about in the Bible that seem maybe more epic, right? What else? Why do you guys forget? We all do it. Tyler. Tyler. Mm. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Maybe sometimes we forget because we didn't even give him credit in the first place. We kind of credit ourselves. Hey, I kind of got navigated that pretty well on my own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have this problem of focusing on kind of what's next. What's the next, what's the next thing you're going to do for me? And, and we forget. There's all kinds of reasons, right, that we forget those things. So the question this story that we're going to look at today will challenge us with <laughs> is what do we do with a God who used to show up, but now it seems like he doesn't? What do we do with a God that used to kind of feel close, but now he feels distant like a stranger? Chris Kandaya, he describes it like this. He says, perhaps we remember times when we heard God's voice, saw God's power at work in our lives and through our prayers, or felt God use us for his purposes. Yet now all that feels like memories of a dim and distant past. Where has that God gone? We strain to see him, to hear his voice, to grasp his saving power, but the ground is sinking beneath our feet. What used to be the solid foundation of our lives has turned to miry uncertainty, and we just cannot gain a foothold. So we're going to take a journey back to when things seem to be going well for David. So if you recall his story, David was the youngest son, probably 13, 14 or so years old. His older brothers were all off fighting the Philistines, uh, fighting with the Israelite army. And so David is kind of left to tend the sheep, all right? Not a very exciting job. And so one day his dad says, hey, I've got something for you to do that doesn't include tending sheep. And he's like, great, what is it? He's like, well, I want you to take lunch to your brothers on the front line. So he's like delivery boy, okay? So he goes to the front lines, gives his brothers the sandwiches. And while he's there, he hears this Philistine off in this field shouting 
these taunts at the armies of Israel in denouncing the power of the God of Israel. And when the soldiers heard these taunts, Scripture says this, that they were all dismayed and terrified. But this whole scene kind of touched a different nerve with David. And you know what he said. Here's what he said. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled, defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. He's a cocky little dude, isn't he? All right? But you want to talk about an amazing confidence in God's ability to show up. And God does, right? God slays the giant, but it doesn't stop there. If you keep reading his story, he, he begins leading Israel's armies into battle and this victory after victory until eventually he becomes king and establishes Jerusalem as like this big capital city that's the envy of the world. And God was showing up in very obvious and miraculous ways in David's life. There was no mistaking his presence. Now, journeying through the book of Psalms, um, if you've been following Christ for a while and have taken some time to read those, is, is I think one of the true blessings of the Christian life. Um, a lot of them are written by David, and they give some really interesting insight, kind of personal insight into his thoughts while his life experiences are happening. So as a side note, it's important uh, fact to kind of remember as you read the Psalms, because uh, they kind of read like poetry sometimes, and, and you kind of can forget that most of those accounts in the Psalms are, are really, um, you know, the, the writer's feelings as life is happening to them. They're tied to real life circumstances. These aren't just random thoughts about God, okay? They're tied and grounded in real world experience of the human journey, filled with all of its ups and downs and joys and sufferings as the writer interacts with God. So you may have noticed when you've read different Psalms of David before that it seems a little bit odd. Like, is this the same guy that we just talked about a minute ago? The guy who slayed all the giants and led Israel on all these amazing successes on the battlefield. And then now in Psalm 69, he's talking to God like, hey, God, why have you abandoned me? You know, why have you stopped showing up? How can both of those things be true? How can God be with us and then feel like he's not with us at all? Well, one of the most helpful things that I learned in seminary was in a class that I had on the Psalms. And I read this book, The Message of the Psalms, by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Okay? It's probably on your shelf at home. Um, it's a theological commentary on the Psalms. And so um, what he does in there is he talks about how Psalms can be broken down into three categories, okay? Psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of new orientation. So I've got some definitions for you here, okay? A psalm of orientation speak to the reality that God is trustworthy and reliable. 
And so we decide to stake our life on this particular God. So it's things that are true about God that are just immutable, that are always going to be true. He loves us. You know, he's in control of everything. He created whatever it might be. Okay? Psalms of disorientation, those are psalms that are acknowledgement that we live in a world marked by disequilibrium, incoherence, and unrelieved asymmetry. Okay? Which means that basically life's a mess. All right? And, And we realize that. Psalms of new orientation. Despite seasons of disorientation, the speaker is often surprised by grace. When there emerges in present life a new possibility that is inexplicable, neither derived nor extrapolated, but wrought by the inscrutable power and goodness of God. So God reorients or gives us a, a new orientation of our circumstances that helps us to move forward. So I'm sure we can look at those different categories of psalms and we can all kind of knowingly shake our heads, you know, and say, yeah, life experience has shown me that, that we all go through seasons that kind of look like that. Seasons of life where things are kind of oriented, where everything seems right, <laughs> everything's kind of functioning the way we'd like it to, the way we think it should. We can relate to this sense of disorientation in these seasons of life where everything just falls apart, <laughs> And it's like the strings are unraveling away from us. And then there's these times of new orientation, times when God uses our suffering to shape a new and a deeper perspective of life moving forward, of who we are, of who he is, of of what our circumstances mean. And the fact that we can so easily see these categories in Scripture and that it resonates with our experience tells me that God knew life was going to be like this. Our journey through these different seasons of life are his orchestrated plan to shape and mature our faith. There is no new orientation without first being a season of disorientation, okay? Things have got to get rough sometimes before they get better. And as we get back to the Psalms, based on what we read in verses 1 through 3, so what we looked at there in Psalm 69, what kind of Psalm is this looking like? of the three that we put on the board. Disorientation, right? David is disoriented at this moment, at this juncture, okay? And we see this kind of honesty a lot in David's writing. He doesn't sugarcoat much. I want you just to kind of hold your spot there and flip back a couple books to Psalm 43 or a couple chapters. Psalm 43 says this. This is David as well. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Lead them. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Flip back to 42. Verse 5. This is going to sound familiar. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. 
And throughout the Psalms, you see David just kind of on this seesaw, right? Is there anybody in here that has never ridden a seesaw? Anyone? All right, good. Seesaws are still alive, right? It's like you don't see them in playgrounds anymore, right? It's too dangerous, I guess. So, but anyways, so, right? David's on this seesaw. It's like from one sentence to the next almost. He's like orientation, disorientation, back and forth, okay? And have you ever had that inner battle in your own heart, right? One day or even just one minute, everything seems to be going well, right? All the stars are aligning in your life. Everything is as it should be. It's all going your way. And then the next minute, something triggers you, bam, right? Or, or life kind of deals you a blow in some way, no matter how large or small it might be. And you find yourself just off the rails, right, bent towards melancholy or anger or frustration or whatever it might be, and you're thinking, what the heck just happened, right? Why am I in this funk? Why am I barking at the people that I love? Help me, God, right? I can tell I'm spiraling down, and I cannot stop it. Anybody been there today? Yes, right? That is a disorienting feeling. We can be oriented when we leave church, right? God, you're good, man. I'm going to have a great week, right? I was, I was so wrong last week, but, but you got me right here. You're good, all right? I walk out the door, and 10 minutes later, I'm cursing God, right? The kids are screaming. We go to lunch. They're throwing food all over the place. It's just a mess, complete disorientation. Forget everything that I learned, right? Life comes at you fast, as the commercial says, right? Well, as we return to Psalm 69 real quick, flip back over there, okay? Verse 1. First thing right out of the gate. Yes, he's disoriented, but God, David, acknowledges his need. That's a great first step, folks. He begins by crying out, save me, O God. I'm drowning here. It feels like water's right up to my neck, and I'm barely hanging on. And all of us know what that feeling is like in life. And, and the reality is, is that can happen in lots of different ways. Sometimes the floodwaters come in quick and rapidly. And, and, and this, our life, we're up to here in a matter of minutes. Other times, it's just like a slow accumulation of water. You know, it's just rising and rising and one thing after another, and it's up to here. And it really doesn't matter how we get there. The reality is, is that we're in deep water. And maybe you're there now. Jesus was there. Matthew 26, verse 37. Jesus is heading to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before he knows what's about ready to unfold his arrest, his crucifixion. And he takes his best friends with him. It says he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And just like David in this moment, Jesus cries out to his father, God, rescue me. Jesus has been there. He understands what it feels like to go through seasons of disorientation in your life. Jesus has wondered, like David wondered, like you and I have wondered, God, where are you? 
on the cross, Jesus' humanity cries out to the heavens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? In my hour of greatest need, where are you? And we all know in hindsight that, that God hadn't forgotten Jesus on the cross. That season of disorientation was the only way for God to rescue us from darkness. God was in control through every painful moment of Jesus' last hours. Let's take a look at verse 3. Back in Psalm 69, it says, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. So in just those couple verses there, what emotions can you hear in his experience? Can you just identify some emotions for me? Verses three through six there, five. Let's make this quick, folks. Yes, read. What's that? Frustration? What else? What's that? Exhaustion? Yeah. Somebody else? Guilt? Okay. Yeah. What's that? Despair? Okay, good. All right. So life seems to be kind of stacking up here. Misery is piling on, right? And when that happens in, in life, it's easy to lose sight of God. It's easy to, to stray from that orientation of what we know is true. Now, in, in categorical terms, okay, so I'm not asking you for details. Would anyone be willing here to share, like, what kind of events have happened in your life or tend to happen in your life where, where you tend to have gotten disoriented? What kind of events have done that or tend to do that to you? Raise your hand so I know where these voices are coming from. Yes. Unexpected death, absolutely. Yeah. What else? Yeah. When your children are struggling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When you're dealing with somebody else's pain or hurt, yeah, somebody struggling. Right? Your own health concerns, the health concerns of other people. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, when there's kind of just a surprising request or demands or information coming from lots of different places unexpectedly. Yeah. What about a, a relational breakup or a divorce? Financial issues, unexpected maybe, or expected? Kind of send you spiraling. What about a, a church or a ministry endeavor that doesn't go well? That can be really disorienting. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so he's saying he's kind of in this season where he's, he's done some ministry and, and had some success with it, and now he's trying to let go of it and give it to somebody else, which is a good thing, but then he's next, and that feels disorienting because it's like, you know, here you were using me, and now I don't know what you're doing with me a little bit, right? So we can all relate to that. Let's take a look at verse 6. Sorry, I kind of overlapped here last time. It says, Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, God of Israel. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, for I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. What stands out to me over the course of reading a lot of David's psalms over the course of my life and as we read today is this, is that David is a fighter, right? When things kind of start falling apart, man, he tries to hang in there in the mess. He calls out to God and he keeps fighting for his faith. And what's he really saying here in verse 6? Take a look at that. David is saying this. I don't want to be a hindrance to the faith of others. I don't want your name to suffer because of how I'm handling the present calamities that have come about in my life or these feelings of doubt that I'm having. Take a look at this sentence here. In a very real sense, David understands that he's not simply fighting for his own faith, but he's also fighting so the faith of others might not be lost. I want you to just sit in that for a minute. You see, how we handle seasons of adversity and disorientation is key. What do we do when God feels like a stranger, when we are drowning or overwhelmed? Do we cry out to God? Or do we first go about kind of doing what feels natural to us, try to kind of fix things? You know, maybe if I can manipulate or persuade, I can kind of turn this story around and kind of get what I want. Maybe I'm smart enough or intelligent enough or wise enough to kind of orchestrate things here on my own. Do we escape? Do we get numb? Do we try to put on a mask, just make, make it look like everything's cool and just kind of ignore how things are going in our life? Do we remember the God who is faithful? Do we trust a God who is working in ways that we cannot see? Or do we panic and fall into to feelings of despair? Do we run to community? Do we invite other people into our pain? Or do we kind of say, no, nah, I got this, and kind of isolate, just kind of try to handle it on our own? And all of those questions are leading to this most important question to consider, and it's this. Does our faith in the darkness 
inspire others? Does our faith in the darkness inspire others? When the people in our life see us struggling, our spouse, our kids, our friends, our siblings, our coworkers, what are they learning about God from how we're responding to adversity? That's one of the things that I tell people in counseling all the time. People are watching you. People are watching how you're going to respond to this challenge, this adversity that's come up in your life. What do you want them to know about God? What are we teaching them about how to fight for our faith when seasons of disorientation come? And guys, I want you to hear me on this, okay? So if you've drifted off to sleep, come back to me, okay? It doesn't have to, it, it, it doesn't have to be pretty, okay? I'm not talking about, you know, seasons of verse become and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to march through the streets and wave the banners of the Lord and shout with my sword and woohoo, you know, it's going to be awesome and we're going to take on the devil and we're going to conquer and blah, 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 you know. That's not really how it looked most of the time in scripture, right? As we think back through the stories we've looked at, what did Jacob do? Jacob wrestled, <laughs> right? Gideon, when he was called to do something he felt insecure about, didn't feel like he was good enough for, what did he do? He tested God again and again and again. I'm going to lay this fleece out tonight, and tomorrow morning, if it's really you, make it dry. Well, okay, he did that, and I'm going to lay it out tomorrow. Now, if it's really you, I want you to make it wet. And, you know, he put God through these tests after tests. Naomi changed her name to bitter, right, because of her circumstances, David kind of has these ugly cry moments, right? It's not pretty. And I'm not saying that it has to be pretty for people to learn from you. But what they need to see is they need to see you stay engaged, stay in the fight, battle. Guys, I'm reminded of the story of Job. We sang about Job this morning. Job was this wealthy man. Uh, from the outside, when you look at his life, it looked like he was always living in this season of orientation. Things were as it should be. Life was good, and he was being blessed. And then intense calamity comes. And in a series of drastic events, he loses his children, he loses his wealth, he loses his own health. Just about everything worth living for. In a moving scene of the story in this account in the book of Job, his friends come to visit him and aren't very helpful at uh, guiding him through the stages of grief. And in this really dark moment in the story, Job makes a really powerful statement. He said he knows something. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. When it's all falling apart around him, Job stands on this solid ground of truth. He comes back to a sense of orientation, right? And so my question for you this morning is, what do you know? What do you know? When God seems distant or silent or seemingly disinterested in our suffering, 
What truths do you come back to? What do you know? And guys, we need to rehearse those things that we know in the good times so they become a song that we can sing in the dark. So that others can be inspired by our faith and learn how to navigate seasons of disorientation that are surely going to come in their life. And many of you guys know I, I have a men's group that I meet with, a bunch of old dudes that have been through life a little bit, right? And, and we talk about what, what's the most important thing that we can teach our kids. And, and we want to think that the most important thing is, is if we can just tell them all these things that are true about themselves, about God, about kind of how we're supposed to perceive, you know, our circumstances, that maybe they'll avoid some heartache in life. Right? Maybe they'll be a little better off than we were, which I hope that there's some truth in that. But what they need more than anything is they need examples from parents, from mentors, friends in their life, not of necessarily how to avoid calamity, but what to do, what to do when you're in it. When you're in a season of disorientation, where does that take you? Where does that lead you? in how you react, whether you move towards God or away, whether you move towards community or away, whether you blame God or, or whatever you do with the junk. Does it draw you nearer to him? That's what our kids need to see. The young life kids we're working with, you know, our friends, our spouse, whatever it might be, people are watching us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank